The proclamation of God's word can be found on page seven of your worship folder. Our sermon text reading today comes from John 13, 21 through 38. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Robin. One of the things that we are committed to here at Redeemer Presbyterian is that we preach through books of the Bible. We do this book by book, we do it chapter by chapter, because we want to hear the flow of thought. It's very easy for a pastor just to, to jump around the Bible and to cherry pick a few verses to prove a point. That's, that's not always inherently bad. We even sometimes do that here at Redeemer. But, but generally, we like to go through books at a time. And so how this works is we map out a sermon plan many months in advance. We actually have all the sermons mapped out from now until Easter. So I'm going through John, trying to line up different chapters and sections to, to break it down into very helpful and applicable sermons, because normally a good sermon has one clear point, but then every so often, this happens. So the plan's all set, and then I sit down midweek, and I begin to, to read, and I begin to write, 
And I realized that in my infinite wisdom, I picked a sermon text that has two main points that lead in two very different directions. And that was the case this morning. So I had to call a midweek audible. But before we get there, by way of quick review, the events of this passage are taking place on the Thursday evening of Holy Week. So this is the final week in the earthly ministry of Jesus. In less than one day's time, Jesus is going to climb the road and he is going to hang on a cross. Jesus is now interacting with his disciples for the last time. He just washed their feet. Remember this from two weeks ago, that the Savior who is sent by God, the Savior who is worthy of all the praise of the world, that Savior gets on his knees to wash dirty feet. And that foot washing service is a type of foreshadowing to show what Jesus is going to do the very next day, where Jesus will not just scrub some external, external dirt off our feet, but he will actually wash us of the internal filth of the heart. And at the end of this very moving moment, the drama is about to increase all the more so, because Jesus is now going to identify his betrayer. Takes a piece of bread, dips it into wine, he hands it to Judas, saying that Judas, I I know what you are about to do. At that point, Satan enters into Judas, and from this point forward, the the plan is fully in motion. There, There is no turning back at this point. Jesus is going to be killed. And the disciples, like usual, they have no idea what's really going on here. And and part of the reason is that the disciples are very foolish, they're very slow to understand, but to be fair to the disciples, they also don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. So we're, we're very used to reading the gospel story about the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so we know how it all turns out, but you need to remember these are just disciples. They don't know the future, and so they're a little bit confused. We see that the disciples think that Judas has gone out to feed some poor people. Little did they know that in this middle of the night, Judas will turn Jesus into the authorities. We have Peter. In verse 37, Peter is naively confident. Jesus, I want to follow you. I want to be like you. I want to do what you are going to do. Very easy for Peter to say that now in the safety of this dining room, but it is not going to be quite as easy the next day with this roaring mob out to get Jesus. And so we will see that Peter will, yes, in fact, deny our Lord three times. Look with me at verse 36. This was going to be the main point for this morning. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. So when I had these sermons all mapped out through Easter, this was going to be the main point for this morning. Basically, we see that Jesus has been given the singular mission of walking the lonely path of Calvary where he would carry a cross where he would die a cruel death so that the full wrath of God might be appeased in Christ. 
And we see here, that's a job that only Jesus can do. No one else can do it, not even Peter. This is the plan of God that's been put into motion by Jesus, that Jesus would die as a penal substitutionary sacrifice. And yet, what many people do in response to the gospel of grace is they have this attitude of Peter. Jesus, I, I can help a little bit. I'll help out with my salvation. I'll play a part. I'll follow you to the cross. Maybe I can do a little for myself. But Jesus clearly says here, you cannot follow me in this role. This is my job, not yours. Leave it to me. You see, the gospel itself, the foundation of grace alone through faith alone depends on Christ alone doing the work alone. Think of a pitcher in Major League Baseball. And so it's the seventh inning, and up to this point, this pitcher is on a roll. And so he is throwing a perfect game. Not, not a, a single player from the other team has made it to first base. And whenever a pitcher gets late into the game, throwing a perfect game, in between innings, they go back to the dugout, and it's just sort of understood, don't talk to the pitcher. He doesn't need a pep talk, doesn't need a device, doesn't need to be coached up. He's in the zone, let him do his job. He's on a mission. At this point, it's the pitcher versus the world, and that's Jesus here. He has a singular mission that he has to do by himself. Don't get in the way. Don't try and help. You don't play a role here. Jesus, go do your job. What's interesting, though, is notice that as a result of the work that Jesus will do, Peter has a response. We have a response. We, we reflect the death of Jesus as we die to ourselves and live for him. That's what happens to Peter. So Peter is not going to go to the cross to atone for his sins with Jesus, but as a reflection of what Jesus has done for him, later in Peter's life, he will die as a martyr. So that's what Jesus means after the comma. You will follow me afterwards. This is the same gospel logic that we see so often in the scriptures. Grace of Jesus results in lives changed for Jesus. God's grace is so pure, it's so free that when you really get it, it's going to change you and you will want to follow him. So that was going to be my main point, a very hard, driving, passionate gospel sermon about grace and then our resulting obedience to grace. But here's where I was very short-sighted in my planning this past week. It would be so wrong to just skip over verse 34. This new commandment that we are to love one another, it's, it's just, it's too rich a verse, it's too important, it's too meaningful just to glance over it. And so I'm gonna make a, a midweek audible. We're going to make verse 34 the theme of this sermon this morning. Two quick reasons why I made this change. Reason number one, we are, and this is no surprise, we are coming off a very contentious year. This has been the most contentious year, at least in my lifetime. Now, granted, I'm, I'm only 39, so I did not live through the 60s. I do not know what World War II was like. 
Granted, I also have only lived in the United States, and so I, I can't speak for what is currently happening in other countries, but at least in my lifetime here in the United States, 2020 was a very difficult time in the church. Not, not talking about our church, but just the church out in the world. We know of good churches here in the city of Detroit where there was just some conflict. Good, faithful, Christ-loving churches that were forced to close their doors this past year. You know, it's one thing when Republicans and Democrats fight or those that follow Fox and those that follow CNN, when they begin to fight. But sadly, that type of fighting is now happening in the church. A party spirit, a, a, a me versus you, a tribalism, virtual signaling, assuming the worst, finding specks in the eyes of our brothers and sisters when we have our own logs that need to be taken out first. You know, the ancient church would fight over Christological heresies. Today we fight over significantly less. And this new party spirit demands that if you do not absolutely agree with me on this one issue, then you are the worst possible kind of Christian, guilty of the worst possible sins. So 2020 was just a rough year. So that was reason number one. Reason number two for why an audible midweek If you have been around Redeemer for a while, you know that we have a threefold mission. So we love God, we love one another, and we love the people of Detroit. And every Sunday morning when you come to church, we remind you that this service is primarily about loving God. And we're also doing a lot to live out our third love, which is love for the city. So evangelism, we've brought the Van Norts to Metro Detroit to plant a church, and we did a summer camp in June, and we are hoping to engage youth at a higher level. We want to partner with crew. We want to get the gospel out into the city. We do not want to become a Christian subculture. We want to be salt and light. We want to be on mission. God has called us to serve here in the city, and that's all great, wonderful. But it occurred to me this past week that we give lots of sermons and reminders about loving those outside of the church, but I can't remember the last time there was a sermon here at Redeemer about us loving each other. So perhaps I'm getting soft and I am losing my edge, but we are going to spend the rest of this morning talking about verse 34, which is loving one another. A new commandment, that just as Jesus has loved us, that we in return would love one another. And you see, it's absolutely crucial that we get this right because our mission here in the city depends on it. Verse 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This means there will be no witness in the city unless we can love one another first. If we want to be effective here in Detroit, if we want to provide a witness that is tangible and real, it begins with a deep love for one another. Coming out of the Protestant Reformation, there were three marks that were identified of what describes a true church. So if you want to be a true, faithful church, number one, there needs to be correct preaching of the word. Number two, there needs to be correct administration of the sacraments. And then third and finally, there needs to be church discipline. So just three helpful marks that describes what it means to be faithful. 
And that's all very good, and I agree with all those wholeheartedly. But John Frame, who is a very well-known Christian academic and philosopher, he has written that there should actually be one more mark, the fourth mark of what makes a church a true church. And John Frame would say it's that of love. Based on this verse that we would love one another, you can have fiery and passionate sermons, and you have deep liturgy, and you have very committed elders that are doing their job, but unless love brings it all together, then the church will just be a clanging gong, it'll just be a noisy symbol, because love is what sets us apart. And as we begin to unpack what it means that we would love one another, remember who Jesus is giving this commandment to. We know that Judas, who is the betrayer, he is left, leaving the other 11 disciples behind. And these disciples are not a, a uniform, single-minded, coming from the, the same position in life kind of group. These are very different men, very different backgrounds, very different jobs, very different views. Likely, many of these men would have had very heated interactions in their past. We have Peter, who we know at this point is, is very brave, but the very next day is going to be a coward. There's Andrew, who had great enthusiasm. James and John are brothers. They are the sons of Zebedee. And from what we can tell, Zebedee had some money. So James and John were raised with wealth. Philip, don't know anything about him. Bartholomew, we saw in John 147 that he had very pure faith. It was easy for him to believe. But there's also Thomas. Thomas is a doubter, and he struggled with believing. Matthew, one of the disciples, he was a tax collector. And this meant that he was hated by most people because he would extort money from the crowds. He worked for the government. Perhaps some of the disciples here in this room were even robbed by Matthew at some point in the past. You have the other James, who is known as James the Less. Not a very flattering name, but even less flattering than being known as the Less is to have the name Thaddeus. Yikes. And then there is Simon the Zealot. He is a radical. He was a military insurgent. So Simon's goal was to overthrow the government that Matthew, the tax collector, was a part of. So in this group of disciples, you have some that are raised in the faith, some with no faith, some that work for the government, some that are trying to overturn it, some that are very well known, some that have no reputation, some that are very rich, some that are very poor. There is no reason for why these men should ever be eating dinner together. In an ancient Middle Eastern context, there could not have been a more diverse gathering. They share nothing in common. This is not an easy group to love. They share nothing in common except for one principle. Jesus loves them. And therefore, they are to love one another. And it is that love that unites. And in the exact same way, Jesus has called each one of us here this morning to be a part of this Redeemer family, and Jesus is telling us on the authority of his word 
that we are to love one another. You know, what, what sadly often happens in the church is that churches are organized primarily around secondary issues of commonality. So that church is for middle-class people, or that's the professional church, or that church is for a certain skin color, or that church is for people that agree on the size of the government. Secondary issues that unite, which means there is no room for costly Christ-like love. You know, it's very easy to gather a group of like-minded people. I I could go out today and I could raise some money to gather a bunch of men like me, my age, that like watching Michigan State football. I I I could do that in a heartbeat and I probably would have more people here than we have at this church service. That would be easy to do, free food, big TV, guys my age watching football. That would be so easy to do. We would get along, no disagreement, no conflict, just like-minded men hanging out. Easy to do. So easy, in fact, you don't actually need God's help. But when you have black people and white people and Asian people and women and men and kids, rich and poor and different views on the government and different cultural backgrounds and different customs and different personalities and different statuses, people who like football and even some who do not like football, when they all come together and they genuinely and deeply love one another, that's when the skeptical world will look at the church and say, there's something going on at that church. Those people at Redeemer, they shouldn't be getting along. That they should be, that those kind of people don't hang out together, but they're not just hanging out, they actually love one another. If Jesus can do that over there, maybe he is worth listening to. The goal in the church is not absolute uniformity, the goal is that we would love one another through difference. There are, yes, of course, certain gospel essentials. The Bible is explicitly clear on a number of very important issues. And for those issues, we must place a stake in the ground. We must never compromise on what God has made clear in his word. But there are some issues that just aren't as clear. And there are some other issues that are just differences. It's not right or wrong, just cultural norms, personalities. And the goal is not to dissolve all difference so that love would be easy and cheap. The goal is that we would love like Christ has loved us. Michael Horton, who teaches at Westminster out in California, has said, a church is not a group of friends you've picked. It's a group of brothers and sisters that God has picked for you. So you look around this room this morning, You will see a bunch of very hot, sweaty Detroiters, but these hot, sweaty Detroiters, they are your brothers and sisters, your mothers, your fathers, your aunts, your uncles, your kids, and we want to love one another as God has loved us. And every Sunday morning as we come together, this is a type of family reunion. In my experience, whenever you go to a family reunion, there's always going to be some in-house squabbles. We still love one another. At every family reunion, there's always at least a few 
oddball uncles. I'm not sure why it's always the uncle, uh, but that's usually how it works. And what makes me very nervous is it seems like the, the uncle's name is usually John. Uncle John is always the weird one. And so it makes me nervous for myself as I get older. I'm not saying who's the oddball aunt or uncle out there, but we, we likely have a few and there are likely some fights, but even still, we're a family and we are called to love one another. In these coming years, as the forces of secularism are rising all the more, the outside world is rooting for us to get ripped apart. It's no, so we are going to need to lean into God's love and extend that love to one another all the more. To quote the Apostle Paul, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So what what, what does it mean that we would actually love one another? We see that Paul says that Love is humble. To have a humble kind of love means that you would consider the interest of others here in our church family as being more significant than even your own. That you are more interested in your brother or sister than you are interested in yourself. My good friend Kevin DeYoung used to always say that if if everyone in your life knows your opinions about everything. So if all your friends know what you think about politics and about economics and all your philosophies of parenting and decorating and being healthy and how to save for the future, if you give your opinion on everything, then you're not very humble, likely just a narcissist, which means you are not loving. If you have an answer for every problem and you feel the need to always speak up because what you have to say is so important, you're not interested in others. You're interested in yourself and you are proud. You see, one of the great gifts that you can give to another person is this, that you would close your mouth, ask questions of another. What, what are your thoughts here? How are you thinking through this? Explain to me, how did you come to this conclusion? One of the best gifts that you can ever give to somebody is the gift of your curiosity. To be genuinely curious about another person. Love is humble. Paul says that love is patient. Christians, and this should be no surprise, Christians even here at Redeemer are going to make plenty of sinful mistakes. Let's be patient with one another as we are all in the process of growing. We have some brand new Christians here at Redeemer, meaning this is all fresh and new. It means they probably believe some things now that maybe a few years from now will actually change. There are others here that are stuck in sin patterns. So in the same way that God has been lovingly patient with us, forbearing, let's be patient with one another as we together grow in Christ-likeness. One of the things I have noticed over the years is that, especially in Presbyterian circles, is that younger Christians discovered Calvinism for the first time. And so Calvinism, this doctrine, these doctrines of grace about free, unearned, sovereign, unilateral grace that's freely received, it is not earned. And yet what so easily happens is that we take that free grace 
and then we begin to judge other people that don't have the same knowledge as us. It's terribly ironic. Calvinists ought to be the most gracious, forbearing people in the entire world because we know that we have not earned it, just that God has given it. Love is patient. Love is not resentful. As much as anything else, Christians ought to be the most forgiving people in the world. We forgive because Christ forgave us. Your brothers and sisters are going to let you down. They will even sin against you. I can even make you this promise that church leadership is going to let you down. The staff, the deacons, the elders, the pastors, just sinners saved by grace. And so what it takes for us to be loving is that we will be very quick to forgive. So let's hold short accounts. Let's not have grudges. Let's not be remembering the sins of the past, but rather be quick to forgive one another in love. Love bears, it believes, it hopes, it endures. One of the sad results of our current cultural moment is that we are taught to be suspicious and assume the worst of everyone. So little tiny disagreements become unfair opportunities to assume the worst. So the attitude goes something like, if you do not recycle like me, then you are guilty of warming the planet and killing people in third world countries. And so if you don't affirm cardboard straws at Starbucks, then you're pro-murder. Case closed. I'm like, well, there might be some wiggle room there. Or if you voted to raise taxes to buy a swing set in the park, then you're guilty of worshiping the government overlords, not the God of the Bible. I mean, let's slow down and not jump to those types of conclusions. There, There might be some middle ground, some ways to love and assume the best. What so often happens is instead of assuming the best, instead of listening and loving, we assume the very worst of our brothers and sisters in the Lord. And in love, we must do better in the church. We must bear with one another. We must believe the best. We must be united in the gospel. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, that is what unites us. That's what makes this all come together, is that love of God given to us in Christ, extended to one another. Think of the church like building a wall. So brick by brick, a wall is being built. But unless there is mortar that makes the bricks stick, the very first storm is going to blow it over. And that's the church. Person by person, the church is being built. But unless there is love as the mortar, the whole thing is going to fall in the storm. You notice in verse 34 that this commandment to love one another is a new commandment. Now, it's it's an interesting thing for for Jesus to say because this is not the first time that love has been mentioned in the Bible. The Ten Commandments, the first tablet is how to love God. The, The second tablet is how we are to love one another. Jesus has already said that we are to love God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. And secondly, that we are to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. So this is not at all the first time that Jesus or the Bible has talked about love. It's a very common, repeated theme in the Scriptures. And so what Jesus means here is not that this is a brand new concept. What he means by a new commandment is that as the events of Holy Week are going going to unfold, specifically tomorrow on Good Friday as Jesus is going to go to the cross, 
There's going to be a new freshness, a new zeal, a new energy to what real love is. You might say after a long day at work, you, you, you got home, and as soon as you got home, there's just a, a new wave of energy that you felt. It's not that you had zero energy during the day, but just when you got home, there's a new freshness, a new energy. And that's what's going to happen on Good Friday on the cross. There's going to be a new revelation, a new zeal, a new passion to the love of God in Christ, meaning that this now is going to be a new commandment. God's love given through Jesus is about to be shown on Good Friday, 12 hours from now, in a way that it has never been shown before. It's not that God didn't love people before Good Friday, but on Good Friday, we are about to see it in a new and fresh way. That love is going to drive Jesus to the cross. Love for his very diverse, his very unthankful, his group of misfit disciples. Jesus is going to the cross in love to die for them. It's the same love that he has for his church today. At the cross on Good Friday, we will see that true love, the true love of Jesus expects nothing in return. Jesus, who is the savior of the world, the second person of the Trinity, worthy of the praise of the nations, he will die to all of that. He will receive nothing in return. He will forgive. He won't complain, but he will suffer silently all in love. At the cross, Jesus is patient with his people because his own people don't even understand what is happening at the cross. Yet Jesus is very patient in their lack of knowledge. He is patient in grace, trusting that God will work over time. In love at the cross, Jesus is not rash, but he is calm. He knows what true love is. That true love means that Jesus will be the one that bears the entire cost of the relationship. Relationship. In fact, that Jesus will even initiate the process to make his life more painful so that others might experience blessing. The cross of Jesus Christ is the blazing center of God's glory and love. At the cross, we see that yes, John 3.16 is in fact true, that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That the love of God did not just send Jesus, did not just give him, but actually sent him to the cross where he will die. What we see at the cross is that God's love is the greater condescending to be with the lesser. That Jesus will bear the weight so that others might go free. That's love. That's this new love that we see on Good Friday. The mystery of the ages up to this point has been how is God actually going to love his people, people like us. And we see the answer to that mystery on Good Friday. True love requires death. It requires sacrifice for the benefit of another. That's the newness of Good Friday. And Jesus clearly says in verse 34, this is not me embellishing as a pastor to make a point. This is the clear reading of verse 34. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Here's what that means. It means when you really get the gospel, 
that you are more sinful than you ever thought possible, but you are more loved and accepted and embraced by Jesus than you ever dared to hope. When you get that message, when you are transformed by the newness of God's love on Good Friday, when you're transformed by the power of this gospel love, the result will be that you will want to love others in the same way. That if you, if you really want to be a loving person, you need to be loved by Jesus first. You see, you can't just will love out of yourself because you don't, you don't have that in you. But when you receive it, when you embrace it, when, when you're actually transformed it, and I know it's not even very Presbyterian to say, but when you actually experience it in an emotional way, the love of Jesus for you, the result will be you'll want to love other people. Jesus says, I'll love you first, and then you will go and love other people. For better or worse, Redeemer, this is your church family. We, 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 People just come in God's providence. This is what he has brought. This is your truest family. This is our family of faith that God has brought together here in Motown. It's very clear that we are not all the same. We have different ethnicities. We have different backgrounds, different personalities. We have different temperaments. And perhaps we even disagree on some very important things. But even in our disagreements, we have one better thing in common, the love of Jesus aimed at us. Therefore, let us love one another. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we begin by giving thanks for your son, Jesus Christ, who went to the cross in love to die for us, to bear our shame, to die for our sin. It's better love than we deserve, and yet, Father, we freely embrace it, we receive it, we do pray that that love would transform us all the more, that it would impact us in such a deep and meaningful way that we'd be the kind of people that loves to extend love to others, certainly love to the city, but for the sake of this morning, Father, I pray that you would help us to love one another here at Redeemer better, that be deep, meaningful, sacrificial, life-on-life -life kind of love. Lord, we need your help for this to happen. So we invite more of you into our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.